The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer preceding our study of God's Word to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that our sins are completely paid for and sin is no longer the issue between us and God in terms of our eternal relationship with Him. However, when we sin, it causes a breach of fellowship within the family. And so it is necessary to use this grace recovery principle to restore ourselves to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can advance in our spiritual life. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege to gather together this evening to study your word, that you have given us your Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us, who teaches us your word, stores it in our soul, and then uh, brings it to memory in times of application, that it is God the Holy Spirit who produces in us a spiritual growth, and he is the one who brings us to spiritual maturity through the uh, study and application of your word. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that we may grow as a result of this time together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we've got a little technological problem tonight, so I may have to turn around a lot to see what's on the screen. But I want to start off this evening by asking you a question. I don't want you to answer it. It's a rhetorical question. You need to put it in your soul, though, because... Every now and then, we all need to take a little spiritual inventory of what's going on inside. The question I want to ask you is, what's your spiritual success ceiling? How's that for alliteration? What's your spiritual success ceiling? Now, where I get this question goes back a few years. Back when I was in seminary, I 
had various different jobs along the way trying to uh, keep body and soul together. And for a very brief time, I tried out a sales position. And we had a sales manager who later turned out to be a crook, but that's another story. And uh, that's why I didn't work for him but four or five weeks. But he did have one insightful thing to say in a sales meeting early on that has always stuck with me. And he was challenging us, of course, and motivating us to go out and produce. And he made the observation that every salesman has sort of a glass ceiling that they unconsciously adopt with regard to their own production, their own sales, how much money they'll make. Some people, it's $50,000 a year. As soon as you hit that, you just sort of scale back and do other things and relax. For other people, it may be 80000 or 100000 or maybe more. But everybody has a figure that they usually haven't thought very much about. And as they go out and they work hard and they produce and they produce and they produce, and finally they hit that goal, and all of a sudden they have their bills paid and their mortgage paid and they've got enough extra money to take care of the extra things they want to do that month, they just sort of relax because they've achieved their goal for the month. I think the same thing's true in the spiritual life. Some people are just satisfied that they're going to go to heaven. It doesn't matter what else God has to say for them or how well they know their Bible. As long as their ultimate destiny is not the lake of fire, they're happy. And that's as far as they're going to go. Other folks are a little more ambitious. They want to at least have a talking acquaintance with God, so they want to learn how to pray effectively, and they want to perhaps learn a few promises about God's faithfulness and uh, what God's going to provide for them. They're usually those basic baby promises that are more me-oriented than anything else. Then you have a few other folks who who at least want to have a passing intimacy with uh, the God who provided their salvation. So they'll show up on a regular basis, maybe Uh, Not only every Sunday, but on occasion, they might even show up in the middle of the week. They don't want anybody to think they're too fanatical. And then you have other folks who recognize that there is indeed something that goes far beyond salvation. And that God saved us for a purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says, He created us for good works. He created us to be witnesses in the angelic conflict. He created us that is, at salvation and regeneration, that we might have this new, remarkable spiritual life to grow to maturity so that when He returns, we would be qualified to rule and reign with Him. Now, that's a real achievement orientation there if you're oriented to really pressing on to the high ground of spiritual maturity. But there's a lot of folks that that doesn't come to their consciousness until later in life. Uh, When they're 18, 20, 25 years of age, they're more concerned with their career, more concerned with getting married, finding romance. They're more concerned a little later on with having babies, raising those kids, and making sure that those kids get exposed to all the important areas of life. Of course, the Bible doctrine is the most important area. somehow escapes them. That's more important than piano lessons. It's more important than football. It's more important than soccer. It's more important than everything else. And if you get those kids grounded in the Word, then that's the most important thing. Everything else somehow manages to take care of themselves. It's usually not an either-or. It's a matter of how you structure your life. 
But the issue is, how much of a spiritual achiever are you? Are you just the nod to God crowd, show up every now and then and make sure that God knows you're still around? Or are you a little more dedicated, a little more interested? One day, we all come to that point where we realize this isn't just an academic study. It's not just about learning a few things about God. It is our life. It is our heartbeat. It is the air we breathe, the water we drink. It is everything to us as believers because this is what our eternal destiny is. And this is the subject that we hit in these last couple of verses in Revelation chapter 2. So you might want to go ahead and turn there. Now, as I was contemplating our study tonight, as we sort of wrap up our study of Revelation 2, before we get into Revelation 3, we'll take a break. And that break is because I want to do a study on basics. So next Sunday night, we're going to start a new basic series that will be a little different from one you've perhaps been exposed to in the past because, frankly, the questions that people ask today are a little different from the ones they asked 50 or 60 or 100 years ago. So we'll start our basic series next week. That will run about three or four months, so you guys back there in the media ministry uh, be ready to shift to a new topic, set up the new folders on the website and everything. So I thought about this and the whole issue of the overcomer in Revelation. A passage came to my mind from Luke 14. Luke records more of what Jesus said related to uh, discipleship than the other gospel writers. In Luke 14:26, he seems to set out some pretty stringent demands that unfortunately are taken by too many people to refer to salvation. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now that would seem to suggest that if you're going to be a disciple, it involves something related to works, and that's true. But discipleship isn't salvation. Discipleship isn't salvation. Discipleship goes beyond salvation. The word for disciple is the Greek word mathetes, which simply means a student are a learner. This is not talking about someone getting saved. It's talking about someone who is willing to go beyond salvation to be a real student of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 27 he says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then in verse 28 he shifts the analogy from uh, talking about bearing the cross to counting the cost. And that's what I want to focus on. He says, for which of you intending to build a tower, if you're going to go out and build a house or you're going to develop uh, any project around the house, you can relate to this. Which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? You want to make sure that you will be able to complete the project. You want to know how much it's going to cost, what the budget's going to be, if you'll be able to pay for everything within your budget. So the issue here is counting the cost. Now, there's no cost to salvation. This is clear in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, where we read, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. See, that's salvation. There's no cost to salvation. Grace is free. No strings attached. It is a simple offer of a gift that you can have salvation if you simply put your 
trust in Jesus Christ. Faith alone, not faith plus works, not faith plus perseverance, not faith plus endurance, not faith plus consistency, just faith alone in Christ alone. That's the salvation message. So verse 28 is not talking about salvation. It's talking about going beyond salvation to being a real student or disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever, which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all will see it and begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Then he shifts to another analogy in terms of political leadership, counting the cost of going to war. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation as conditions of peace. So in verse 33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is pointing out here is there's a cost to advancing in the spiritual life, to being an achiever in the spiritual life. What kind of student are you? Are you the kind of student that's satisfied with a C? Or do you want something a little uh, more ambitious? Are you satisfied with a B? Or are you the kind of student that is only satisfied with a an A or an A+. plus. See, what kind of disciple, what kind of student are you? What is your spiritual success ceiling? And that's what these overcomer passages at the end of these letters to these seven churches are all about. They're designed to motivate us to recognize that, 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 that salvation is a free gift, but it comes with an incentive clause an incentive to go beyond simple salvation to pursuing spiritual maturity that Jesus Christ has in mind and has called us not simply to salvation, but to form a spiritually elite cadre that will go into the millennial kingdom to rule and reign with him. And what he's calling us to is a level of excellence that goes far beyond what you normally see in a local church. I think this is one of the one of the casualties in losing a free grace gospel. Because what happens when you lose a free grace gospel is everybody's just an overcomer. And you no longer have an incentive to pursue spiritual maturity. You lose that along the way. Now let's go to our passage in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. The challenge for us is to be an overcomer. Revelation 2.26 begins with this phrase, He who overcomes. These are the spiritual elite I just mentioned. In Hebrews, there's another term for them. They're called companions of Christ. The Greek word is metakoi. These are the ones who will be that cadre of kings and priests who rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. Now, the question we ought to ask is, what makes them different? What makes these overcomers, these metakoi, these victorious Christians different from the rest of the pack? It just boils down to one primary thing, volition. Volition, day in 
day yet. It's not a one-shot choice. It's not a result from walking the aisle, dedicating your life to Christ. I would rather have a thousand Christians who just sit in their pew and think seriously about what it means to live each moment with a focus on doctrine than to have these people go through this emotionally driven uh, show of walking an aisle. What you want to do is focus on that day-to-day decision-making process. Some days you're you're there, some days you aren't. We all go through those those struggles. The first thing that makes them different is their volition. Second thing that makes them different is their priorities. The overcomer believer has a different set of priorities. He recognizes that he's living this life in light of eternity, and that shapes how he manages his time. That's why in the same passage where Paul talks about the filling of the Spirit, he says we're to redeem the time. We're going to manage our time differently. We're going to decide what we're going to do some days, some nights, in terms of going to Bible class, rather than doing other things that are fine and good and enjoyable. There's nothing immoral or illegal about them, but they're not going to advance our spiritual life. So they're different because of their volition. They're different because of their priorities. They're different because they're faithful. Now, that's really the key issue in this is faithfulness. It's not your IQ. It's not whether you went to seminary or how much of the Bible you know or how adept you are in theological reasoning. In fact, I know a lot of people who've been to seminary probably aren't going to get very far, and I'm convinced that the real winner believers that show up in heaven, the ones who are really victorious, are going to be not pastors. Maybe I'm just prejudiced because I've run around with a lot of pastors. I think it's a lot of folks in the pew who are learning the Word and consistently applying it, and they are. we're going to be amazed at who some of these overcomers really are. But what makes them different is not that they have a higher IQ, not that they're smarter, not because they're adept at theological reasoning, but because they're faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2, Paul says, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful, that's the issue. Faithful in listening to doctrine. Faithful in assimilating doctrine. Faithful in applying doctrine on a day-to-day basis in their life. Faithful in maintaining that priority. So sure, we've all done that. We sit down and we say, yeah, I'm going to make doctrine a priority. And next thing you know, it's a year later, and we're saying, I need to make doctrine a priority. I'm going to do it. And it works for a couple of weeks. And then a year later, we're saying, you know, I really need to make doctrine a priority in my life. I don't know why I haven't been to Bible class more than once a week in the last six months. I need to make doctrine a priority. And so we make it a priority, and a year later we're saying, you know, I really need to make doctrine a priority in my life. And one day we start rearranging things. It means we, we have to count the cost. We're going to give up some things. There are some things in life that we really enjoy. There's nothing wrong with them, but they're a distraction to our spiritual advance. So Revelation 2.26 starts off talking about this overcomer. We've studied it before, and I want to summarize some of these things tonight. begins, he who overcomes. And the word there for the overcomer is nikao. looks like I've lost the Greek by shifting. Oh, I know why you don't have the other program on there. The, so the Greek is going to be shot on these slides because we had to shift computers. Nikao, N-I-K-A-O. 
It's a present active participle, and it's a participle with an article that functions like a noun, and so it's actually translated an overcomer. The basic meaning is a victor, someone who is victorious in the games, someone who is a winner at the races, at the Olympics. It refers to someone who is a conqueror, someone who is militarily victorious, or someone who has overcome uh, various obstacles. So we will translate it winners. He who is a winner. And then we have to understand what this means. Is this just being a believer? There are those who teach that. But as we've seen in the past, this is a special elite class. These are the believers who advance. These are the real disciples who are those who press forward in the spiritual life. We have to recognize that all believers have certain things in common. First of all, all believers in the church age are going to get raptured. There's no such thing as a partial rapture. There are those who teach that, that those who are spiritual get raptured, and if you're not spiritual, you get left behind. But no, we believe in a total rapture of all believers, whether you are spiritual or carnal, whether you're obedient or disobedient, you are going to go up with the rapture. All believers get raptured at the end of the church age. Second, all believers in the church age are going to get resurrection bodies. Every believer in the church age is going to get a new body. This mortality must put on immortality. This corruption must put on incorruption, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and following. Third, all believers are going to have perfect happiness. All believers will have perfect happiness, and I believe that, that there will be different, different amounts of perfect happiness, different grades of perfect happiness, but everyone will have perfect happiness. Though we must recognize that the non-overcomer, the believer who is a failure in the spiritual life, is going to experience shame at the judgment seat of Christ. This is going to be a temporary period. We don't know how long it will last. But there will be a temporary time of shame and embarrassment and anxiety at the judgment seat of Christ, according to 1 John 2:28. And fourth, all believers have eternal life and spend eternity in heaven. Now, we know that's true for every single person who puts their faith alone in Jesus Christ as a church-age believer. But there are differences among believers in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. So we need to contrast the difference between victorious believers and those who are failures, those who uh, fail in the spiritual life. First of all, the victorious believer receives rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Rewards, privileges, and blessings. This is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll give you the exact verses here in a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 and following. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 and following. Second, the victorious believer is praised personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this from several parables in the New Testament where the faithful servant is praised, well done, good and faithful servant. See, it's not his 
IQ, knowledge, how much work he did down at the local church, all these things that people put an emphasis on. It's her faithfulness in learning the Word and applying it. Of course, that application includes uh, Christian service. We've seen that several times as it's emphasized in these letters. So the victorious believer will be personally praised by the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, we see that victorious believers have different levels of privilege and authority in the millennial kingdom. There will be uh, different capacities for happiness, different uh, grades of authority, different levels of responsibility in the millennial kingdom. This is indicated by the overcomer passages that we've looked at already. For example, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, we're told that they will, the overcomer believer will eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And as we studied that, we saw that this has to do with, with intimacy with the Lord, a special access to God. There seems to be certain areas of heaven that he will have access to that others do not have access to. This idea of eating that we see here uh, is indicative of fellowship in the Scriptures. It's part of several of these overcomer passages. He eats of the tree of life, which indicates a special capacity of life in eternity. He has eternal life. He's in heaven. He has perfect happiness. But there is an additional capacity of life and happiness that is available to the overcomer believer. In Revelation 2, verse 11, we're told that the overcomer believer is going to to have the crown of life. That's to the faithful one in the previous verse in Revelation 2.10. And that he won't be hurt by the second death. In other words, his potential rewards will be distributed. They won't be destroyed in the lake of fire, which we have studied uh, in detail. Third... We've seen that the overcomer believer is going to be given the hidden manna, which relates to a special uh, spiritual intimacy with the Lord. He's given a white stone with his name written on it, and that white stone we saw was an analogy of a special ticket that where you uh, were given access to these feasts in the temples in the ancient world. So it's a picture of special access to God in the kingdom and in the and in heaven, and a new name indicates a new recognition related to spiritual advance and spiritual achievement. And then in this fourth letter, we see in Revelation 2.28 that they're given authority over the nations. Uh, They will rule over the nations, and they are going to be given the morning star. Now, there's some question as to just what that relates to, but it seems to relate to a sort of an overt sign that they are an individual in authority with responsibility to rule, whether that has to do with some sort of special dress or crown or decoration, whatever it may be. It is a visible indication that this person is a person who has authority over the nations in the kingdom. Okay, all of that was under... Point three, that victorious believers have different levels of privilege and authority in the kingdom. Fourth, we see that the victorious believer, the victorious believer is at the wedding supper 
following the marriage of the bride, which is the church, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the victorious believer is invited to the wedding feast, and he's present there when the church consummates its union with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is described in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 3, and Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Fifth, we see that victorious believers participate with the Lord Jesus Christ in his final defeat of Satan. They return with him in that mighty army that returns with the Lord Jesus Christ, described in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and following. Revelation 19, or excuse me, Revelation 19, verses 9 and following. Victorious believers participate with the Lord Jesus Christ in his final defeat of Satan. Revelation 19, 14. And then six, victorious believers will then rule in the millennial kingdom with Jesus Christ as kings and priests. And this is seen in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. All of this is to motivate us and stimulate us to press on to spiritual maturity. That's what the real doctrine of perseverance is. The real doctrine of perseverance isn't the Calvinistic distortion that the true believer will persevere in good works necessarily. And therefore, if you don't persevere, you weren't really saved. That's the distortion of lordship salvation. The true doctrine in Scripture is that if you persevere as a believer and endure in the spiritual life, then there are special rewards, blessings, and privileges for you which will be distributed at the judgment seat of Christ as you reach that level of being a metachoi or companion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at some of the things the Scripture says that believers lose if they are a failure. Failure believers fail to put doctrine first. They fail to count the cost. They fail to apply the word. And they fail to grow spiritually. They constantly get distracted by all the things that come up in life. There's, there's a, a ball game. There's extra work that has to be done. Other responsibilities around the house. All of these things that are fine and well and good, but they somehow keep us from making doctrine a priority. The second thing we see is that failure believers are often wonderful people. And they may be very successful in this life. They may uh, be quite wealthy. They may be quite successful. They may advance in terms of their temporal responsibilities and jobs and careers, but often at the expense of learning doctrine and advancing in their spiritual life. So we see under point three that failure believers become distracted by the details of life. And year after year after year goes by, and they keep saying, well, one day. And usually what happens is they hit about 65 or 70, and they start seeing a few friends go to be with the Lord, and they recognize that, wait a minute, I'm not taking any of this with me. And I don't know about you, but I noticed that in my post-50 years that uh, more and more people I talk to get a little closer to that time when the Lord's going to take us home. And we recognize in a more real way than we ever did before that it's not about this life. And those of you who are under 30 just can't, I know, you just you hear it, you say, yeah, I understand it, but you don't. One day you wake up and you realize, it could be tomorrow, and am I ready? Those who are failure believers will experience shame at the judgment seat of Christ, according to 1 
John 2.28. They'll experience shame at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, and they won't hear the Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Sixth, there'll be a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. They may end up entering heaven with nothing, but they'll be saved. That's what 1 Corinthians 3.15 indicates. They lose rewards, but they are still saved. They don't lose their salvation. They just lose the rewards. 1 Corinthians 3.15, Revelation 2.11, they're hurt by the second death, and that their rewards are destroyed in the lake of fire. Seventh, they will enter, but they will not inherit the kingdom. Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. We've studied this. They are distracted by sin, and therefore they lose opportunities to advance, and they will not inherit the kingdom. And then eighth, their rewards will be destroyed in the lake of fire, Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 5.10 says that He will make us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. This is just training, folks. This is just basic boot camp to get you ready for that opportunity to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And how well you grasp that today is your understanding of your eternal destiny. Back to Revelation chapter uh, 2. 2.26 reads, He overcomes and keeps my works. What's the relationship of those two phrases? Overcoming and keeping my works? No, as I point out in the slide, the chi there should be understood as what's called grammatically as an ascensive chi. Now, you don't know what that means but what it means is it's not just linking two things, this and that, like I got apples and peaches at the store, but it is saying something more about the first thing. So it is to the one who overcomes, and moreover or even or furthermore, he who overcomes even keeps my work. So overcoming is defined as keeping my works. Now, what does that mean? Well, the verb for keeping is the present participle, present active participle of tereo, which means to keep or to guard or to preserve or maintain a certain course of action. And so the passage reads, he who keeps my works. Now, what are those works? This is the word ergon. We've seen it a number of times. It means production. It can mean it can mean human good, it can mean divine good, it can mean sin. You have to look at the context to define what those works are. But in the context here, the works are maintaining your spiritual growth, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, uh, using all of the spiritual dynamics that God has given us for growing and maturing in the Christian life, using the faith rest drill, being oriented to grace, oriented to doctrine, uh, loving God first and keeping His commandments, loving one another. All of these are those spiritual dynamics that come under the category here of keeping my works. He who overcomes even keeps my works until the end. Now that word until is the Greek word akri, 
which means something to a certain point, and the end point there is the word telos, meaning a point of time marking the end or final goal or consummation of a process. So it is the idea that he who keeps my works until the end of his life, that's perseverance. You're not going to uh, keep after it while you're in your 20s and 30s, while you have kids at home. I remember one one time I I was pastoring a church, and I had a deacon whose father had been very involved in church most of his life. And this man was now in his late 70s, and, and the, the deacon I had came to me and he said, I just can't understand it. He met an old high school flame, and they're living together. This man's been a deacon. He's been, he's been a, a, a lay minister. He's always been involved in the church, and now he's just living with her. They're not even going to get married. He said, what, what has happened to him? He doesn't have any spiritual interest at all. Well, I said, well, that's because you're doing well. He raised you, exposed you to doctrine. And now that all that's over with and nobody's really looking at him for an example, he's going to do what his sin nature wants him to do. And this happens so often. People get into their 60s or 70s and all of a sudden say, well, I made it. I did great up to this point. And then they give up and they just... They don't make it to the finish line. And so that's the point. Who overcomes until and keeps my word until the end. Then we have the promise. To him, that is, to the overcomer believer, I will give authority or power, exousia in the Greek, and it indicates Authority or control over something or someone. It's the potential to command, to control, or to govern. And in this case, it is governing responsibilities over the nations. And there will be a hierarchy of governments in the millennial kingdom. And the focus is the nations. I will give him ruling authority over the nations. These are the Gentile nations, not Israel. Israel is ruled by a different system. But these are church-age believers who are going to rule over the nations in the millennial kingdom. Now, in the next verse, we come to a very interesting concept. This is a quote from a familiar passage to you by now, one you're probably sick of, and that's Psalm 2. We've gone through Psalm 2 a couple of times in the last few weeks as we've studied in Hebrews we would have hit it again this last Thursday night if it weren't for the rain. We'll hit it again this next Thursday night. And it's interesting how these two passages uh, complement one another. But we will, as church-age believers, rule with the Messiah. Verse 27 reads, And he, that is the Messiah, shall rule them, that is the nations, with a rod of iron. Now, in the context of Psalm 2 the them relates to the, the Gentile nations who are in rebellion. And this is a scene that is pictured at the end of the tribulation period. All the nations gather together and conspire against, the, against God, and they're shaking their fist at God, and they want to destroy and prevent the return of the Messiah and the establishment of His kingdom. And, of course, Jesus Christ will return, and He will defeat the nations at the Battle of Armageddon and will establish His kingdom. And all the unbelievers are going to be taken off of the earth so that only believers, mortal believers, survive. Now, those mortal believers still have sin natures. 
And those mortal believers are going to marry one another, and they're going to have little babies with little sin natures, just like you and just like me. But they're going to be living in perfect environment with a perfect government. But one of the things that makes that government perfect is it is going to be a government that's not afraid to express its authority. Because you see, the way to control sin natures, and parents, there's an application here for you. The way to control sin natures is to be tough. The word that is used here is he will rule them with a rod of iron. And the word for uh, rod that is used here, well, first of all, the word for rule is an interesting word. It's poimeno, which is the same word, or poimeno, which is the same word that is used for being a shepherd, being a pastor. And here it has the idea of rulership or governing, which is part of the responsibility of a pastor is to rule and govern a congregation. But here it's applied to political leadership. And they shall rule with a, a rod of iron. And the word for rod is the Greek word rhabdos, which refers to a relatively slender piece of wood in varying lengths that indicated a ruler's staff or a scepter. So he will rule them with a scepter of iron. This characterizes the reign. It's an iron rule. This isn't sweet little Jesus of liberal theology that's going to come along and pat everybody on the back and say, oh, I understand how difficult it is. This is a Jesus who is going to rule these nations with a rule of iron, and he will... And they will be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. See, there is going to be the application of the word, and this comes out of Psalm 2, 8, and 9, uh, where the Messiah during this period is asking for the nations, they'll be given an inheritance, and the ends of the earth for a possession. And then in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron, and they will be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. And the word for a rod is the same kind of word in the Hebrew. It's shevet, indicating a uh, staff or uh, a stick, a scepter. And the word for crushing, translated crushing or dashed to pieces, is the Hebrew pl stem of nafats. That intensifies the meaning. It means to shatter, to crush, or to dash to pieces. See, you have to control sin natures. You can't let sin natures just one rampant. And that's the role of government is to control sin natures so that they are not allowed to run rampant and destroy everybody else's freedom operating on arrogance. Now in verse nine we verses eight and nine of Psalm two we read about this this rule and Hebrews one, eight and nine expands on that. In Hebrews one eight we read, but to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. In Psalm 2, it's a scepter of iron, which is the application of a righteous rule. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And the word there, companions, is that word I've mentioned already, metakoi meaning those who partake and participate with the Lord Jesus Christ in his rule. 
Now we come to back to 227. They shall be dashed to pieces. This is the Greek verb, soon trebo, meaning to subdue completely or to crush. So this indicates something about the nature of the millennial kingdom. This is not a tyrannical rule. It will only seem that way to those with sin natures who want to get away with things. That's why there will be a certain number of people who are dissatisfied, who reject the Messiah. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, they will be deceived by Satan. There's a brief revolt, and then God destroys them with a uh, rain of brimstone and fire and completely wipes out that Gog and Magog revolution. So the overcomer is the one who will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ and share this reign characterized as a rod of iron. And to him will be given the morning star. Now this is a somewhat enigmatic reference because there's only a few other places where there's a reference to a star related to the Lord Jesus Christ. One is in Numbers 24, verse 7, where there's a prophecy that a star will come from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. And this is the first indication of a star related to the Lord Jesus Christ. The next indication, of course, is the appearance of the star over the uh, manger in Bethlehem. And I believe that that was not a physical star. Now, every Christmas, in case I don't get a chance to talk about this between now and Christmas, every Christmas these articles come out by astronomers talking about how the star formed. And there was a confluence of Jupiter and Mars, and and they go on and ramble. It's irrelevant. No matter how many times you read those articles, always think, how can Jupiter, just look at Jupiter up in the sky sometime, can Jupiter ever point out to you a house down the street? Can it do that? No, because by the time you get to that house, it's pointing out the next block, and you just keep right on going. There's no star in the heavens, no, no alignment of planets. There's no, nothing astronomical that can point out an individual residence. And that's what that star did. It's an expression of the Shekinah glory. And that's what this references to, is to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is referred to as the morning star in Revelation chapter 22, Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And so the term the morning star is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we read in Revelation chapter 2 that, we, that the overcomer will rule with him, verse 26 is the main clause, I will give power over the nations. Then there's a quote. And then verse 28. So just wipe out the middle part of verse 27. And the main thought says, I will give power over the nations and I will give him the morning star. So what's the connection? The connection is based on understanding that conjunction and. And I believe, again, as is typical in John, he uses the and in that ascensive way that we saw already. It is explaining or defining the previous statement. I will give him, give him power over the nations, even the morning star. And so the morning star seems to be an emblem or a symbol of his authority to rule the nations. 
So we rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're given this overt symbol signifying the authority that the overcomer believer has. And then the challenge in verse 29 takes us right back to our starting point. What is your spiritual success ceiling? That's a decision you make. It's your volition. It's not a matter of the circumstances in life. It's what you make of your circumstances in life in terms of growing and advancing in your spiritual life. It's a matter of volition. So each of these short letters concludes, He who has an ear, that is, to the one who is ready to listen, to the one who is truly positive, to the one who really wants to learn doctrine, to the one who has an ear, let him hear, and that's a third-person imperative, let him listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And, of course, James makes it clear that it's not just coming to Bible class, filling up your notebook, and having your uh, auditory nerves vibrated. It is hearing and applying the Word. It's not just learning it, not just getting uh, spiritually fat on all the doctrine that you learn. It's not just collecting all these doctrines in great notebooks or filling up your computer with it. It's getting it into your soul, and then when the circumstances and situations arise, you apply that doctrine, you make decisions that are consistent with divine viewpoint and the plan of God instead of doing what your sin nature wants to do so that you can press on to spiritual maturity and be an overcomer believer and not a failure at the judgment seat of Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that you have made the issue so clear to us that the most important issue for us is salvation putting our faith alone in Jesus Christ, because it is at that point that we turn from death to life. And that's the issue that you have set before all of us. Are we going to choose death, or are we going to choose life? The issue is up to each individual. If you're here this evening and you're unsure or uncertain of your eternal destiny, this is your opportunity to make that sure and certain by putting your faith alone in Christ alone. But after you're saved, there's another question. And that question has to do with with your spiritual life, your spiritual growth, and your eternal destiny. Are you ready to be a disciple? Are you ready to press on to spiritual maturity? Or do you desire to be the very best that you can be in terms of your spiritual life so that you can be a part of that elite spiritual cadre that rules and reigns with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. That's a decision we make every moment of every day until the Lord takes us home. Father, we thank you for what we studied this evening. We pray that you would challenge us with these things and that we would not forget them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.